Hello everyone, welcome once again to A Reason for Hope. We're so glad that you're with us today, however you're joining us or stumbled upon us. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast which is dedicated to your questions on the Bible. We love to connect you with God's Word uh, by means of your questions. So if you have a question on Scripture, maybe a verse or passage of Scripture that you've, you've read that kind of is confusing to you, you'd like to delve into it a bit more maybe something you're going through in your life even you'd like to know what does god say about it so you'd like to make a decision that might honor god and i'm not too sure what he would say we'd love to connect you with the word and see what the bible says about that maybe even other worldviews and religions um things contradictions that you've heard about the bible anything along those lines as long as it's an honest and sincere question and as long as you know that the bible is what we're using to find the the answers we believe it contains uh, the truth it's god's word alive profitable for many things and so that's what we're all about here at reason for hope you can send in your questions through various uh, methods i'll be going over those in a moment my name's dave robson i'm your host today and i'll be with you on all those platforms as your questions coming in today we have adrian van Vactor with us as well you know some people don't believe that we're actually two different people because we're usually sharing you know host back and forth it's been said that maybe we're just in disguise in disguise yeah but a little beard take a little beard away yeah as you can see we are two different people Another no one said other that co-host i can speak with an english accent <laughs> <laughs> right i can't help it just comes out you doing good yeah it's good to see you thanks for yeah. thanks for being kids here kids are good life's good yeah busy you got your hands full i know ah yes yeah twin boys who are almost two and a four-year-old yeah also boy also boy <laughs> He shows it. And you're a boy as well. So, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's last time that. I checked. Yep. Yes, love. <laughs> Less said about that. Also with us, Pastor Sean Richards. Good to see you as well. How are you doing? I'm also a boy. He was a boy. That's right. Oh, boy. A lot of boy. A lot of boy energy going on here today. That's okay. That's all right. We don't mind. We don't mind so much. Well, thank you both for being here and being available, being faithful to the show. And I'm um, looking forward to see where it's going to go. Um, as far as your questions uh, well like i mentioned i'll go over some of those platforms i'm going to use adrian's method today see how that goes um, i usually put my little presentation up but he puts the fancy overlay so we're going to try that today you can send us your question to our email address questionsforhope at gmail.com we get questions through that method so you're more than welcome to shoot us an email there you can join us on Facebook. We are live on Facebook as we speak. Look for um, CCF Tucson, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We're a ministry and outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship. So if you keep that in mind, um, it will help you find us. We're here in Tucson, Arizona, and live with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. So keep in mind, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, that will help you find us. So facebook.com slash CCF Tucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson there on Facebook. Don't forget to like and share. We'd appreciate that. But uh, send in your question through the comments uh, section there attached to the video and you'll find us there. We're live on YouTube as well. Uh, you can look for A Reason for Hope. That is the name of the channel, A Reason for Hope on YouTube. Once again, like and subscribe and click on the notification bell. Uh, we'd appreciate that as well. It's a great place for archive. Anytime we've been live, you're, if you go to that live tab, you will see archive shows anytime we've been live it's right there for you we also post other um, content on youtube as well so we're live right there also uh, calvarychristianfellowship.com 
This may be your preferred way of joining us if you're someone that doesn't use social media. CalvaryChristianFellowship.com is our website. Go to that Watch Live tab and you will find us live there. You can sign in with a username of your choice and then interact with us through the chat function there. When we're offline, you'll see a schedule of upcoming uh, events as well, a countdown to our next show so you won't have to miss anything. If you listen to us on the radio, keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded so we're not live with you. Um, but you can use, uh, once again, our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com to send your question in. We'll get to that on our next show. So once again, however you're joining us, we are very glad you're there. Send in your honest and sincere Bible questions, and we'll be glad to help you navigate those and find some answers for you as well. Well, it'd be great to pause to pray, ask God to bless. Would you like to pray for us, Adrian, sure. today? Yeah, That'd be great. Yeah. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to share your word to share the things that you have taught us may our words have grace and clarity of truth may we only speak that which you have spoken and teach that which is true so we uh, ask uh, that you would be with us today and uh, bless our time together and those who are viewing us may they be encouraged and lifted up <clears throat> and uh, maybe even learn something new today we pray this in jesus name amen 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 thanks for that well, we have some questions that have come in while we're off air and some leftover questions, so we can jump right into those if you guys are ready, sitting comfortably. Yeah, all right, good stuff. <laughs> uh, question from Anna. Why does my friend tell me we are just food for worms and no real purpose? Why does he believe this instead of the Bible? Why don't people just believe what the Bible says? Well, either uh, they haven't been talked into it or they've been talked into something else. There was a good illustration uh, given by John Lennox where he asked a group full of you know, mathematicians, scientists, philosophers, students trying to pursue that when being a student at a university still meant something. And he asked them a question about why is the kettle boiling? And the uh, responses that uh, came in were generally in the ballpark of, oh, well, you know, the scientist says that it's uh, because the molecules are getting so stirred up that it's causing some sort of chemical reaction, creating steam vapor. And because of the design of the kettle, the passage of the air through the mechanisms are making a loud pitch noise to get your attention to let you know that's happening. And Professor Lennox, being the jolly old Irishman that he was, just shook his head and said, no, it's boiling because I want a cup of tea. And that's really an interesting point for a lot of people because when they get into what we call in fancy circles, pure empiricism, naturalism, the idea that nothing exists beyond our five senses, you get caught into the trap of this is how it works, therefore I don't have to ask any questions beyond why. And of course, that's the real question we're asking. If we do, in fact, come from somewhere, was that somewhere with a purpose? And if that purpose is something relevant to how we're living our lives, do we, in fact, need to know that kind of information? We believe that where we came from was through the triune God creating us for a relationship with himself, and the reason why we exist is ultimately to draw us back into that relationship with him. He verified this through the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, the stuff that you'll read about in the Bible. 
other people are going to dismiss anything beyond what they can observe and simply say that when you die, you're done. When you physically leave this world, there's nowhere to go to because, to quote another Christian philosopher and speaker, we believe that after death comes nothing because the dead say nothing. We can't actually verify anything about that. The claim that worm food, of course, is a another way of phrasing. You're just going to decompose, become a part of the earth, and then eventually uh, become mulch that'll grow into a tree that will then subsequently cut down and print the Bible on. But that's, again, another joke. When we're talking to people about their worldview, though, you need to be aware of your assumptions. And this is, I think, one of them. If they believe that there's only things that can be observed with the five senses, and Adrian, you know as much as anyone else in this room would, that you can't always trust those things, it ultimately comes down to whether or not you have good reasons to believe this. People obviously see the dead all the time and know that that's what happens to the body, but is the body all that there is? These are some of the things that you need to challenge with them, and if course, they can grant the idea of a soul. I'd recommend the research of Gary Hammerboss on near-death experiences to verify this. Even from a scientific perspective, it's curious. But this is the idea behind all of this. When we claim that there is an afterlife, we're not doing it because it makes us feel good. In fact, for the original eyewitnesses and many people today, especially right now in Nigeria, it's making them feel very bad to affirm two things. One, that Jesus of Nazareth is in charge of the afterlife and he died from the rose and rose from the dead in order to verify that directly. If they claim to have a scientific perspective, they, they take the skeletal approach from Nacho Libre. I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Well, follow the data where it leads. If a man went to the afterlife and came back and said there was actually something there, then we have a hypothesis. And that, of course, is given to us in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 7, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. And it goes off to list 500 eyewitnesses seeing him alive after his death at one time. If you want more historical information on that, we can recommend it. But in regard to the question that was asked by, uh, I believe her name was Ona, we need to be aware that there's a lot of assumptions being made before the conclusion, and that's where mistakes are often made. It's not that they didn't work out the problem, but they're leaving out some important factors. And, of course, that is assuming there is nothing beyond what we can see. Now, Adrian, anything you want to add to this or in noting a leading question, when it comes to someone who comes to you with that naturalistic assumption, what do you generally say to them that I haven't already? Well, it's he's right in the sense that the person saying we're all just worms is true if God does not exist, and that is the bottom line is that if if God does not exist, then life has no genuine meaning and purpose. We are just worm food. Uh, we have no value because we have no value giver. We have no meaning because we ha and purpose. We have no purpose giver, and we have no moral law or no objective moral code because there's no moral law giver. Uh, the question becomes next, as Sean so uh, well put, is that is there any evidence to believe that God does not exist or does exist? And so <clears throat> that's where I would take the person in responding to them is not necessarily asking right off the bat, why don't you believe the Bible? Uh, I would go to Romans 1, is why don't you uh, believe in the very clear and, and well-understood evidence from nature that God does, in fact, exist? 
And <clears throat> as uh, Nietzsche in that little story with the madman running into the town, a town of unbelievers who stop believing in God, and he's saying, where is God? Where is God? And, and they start laughing at him saying, what, did he get lost? Did you forget where he was? And he goes, no, we have killed him. We have killed, we're the murderer of murderers. Uh, can someone drink up the sea and so on? And what he's basically illustrating is that you have not come to realize the ramifications of atheism. The ramifications of atheism is tremendous despair for human beings who need and long for genuine uh, meaning and purpose. When I do my talks on the paranormal, I always ask my audiences this question. Why is it that people seek for the supernatural? Why is it someone is willing to believe in ghost stories and fraudulent claims of the paranormal like psychics and witch doctors and gurus? Because we have within our own <laughs> being the need for transcendence, the need for the eternal, the need for the real thing. And so we are easily deceived by the fake because we are fallen sinful creatures. But it illustrates that human beings not only long and need a genuine purpose and only eternal life can give it to us, but um, <clears throat> we will sort of uh, uh, do anything we can to uh, sort of replace that. And I, I would just talk to that person and say, well, why do you believe that we're just worm food? Why do you believe that life, and then allow that person to continue going down that rabbit trail the logical implications of an atheistic worldview. Life has no genuine meaning. So I would say, yes, you're right. We are just worm food. And uh, right and wrong have no meaning. And you can ask simple questions like, is torturing babies for fun wrong? And, you know, pick whatever hot button bothers them. If this person would ever complain about being, you know, stolen from or wronged in any way, just question them. Say, well, why is that wrong, though? If man's end is nothing, then he is nothing. Life has no genuine purpose. And as the, the existentialist philosophers would often say, the last question of philosophy when it comes to a, an atheistic worldview, which leads to nihilism or nihilism, <clears throat> is the question of suicide. Gosh, if life is this full of despair, then why not just end it? And that's, you know, the kind of brutal conversation you can have with someone like that. At least that's what I do. And, and now if they're just mocking your faith, then you can go down that road. But if they're genuinely seeking, then you can begin to share with them evidences for God's existence, specifically the fact that God entered into human existence and entered into human history, walked and talked with us for 33 years, healed the sick, the blind, the crippled, raised the dead, and then he allowed the people that he created to spit on him, to beat him, and to nail him to a cross. And then to furnish proof, as Paul says in Acts 17 to the Athenians, that <clears throat> he furnished proof by raising him from the dead. So the historic re resurrection, one of the most validated uh, facts of human history, of ancient uh, history, uh, you can argue from just from that alone to say that I have good reasons for believing that God exists. Do you have good reasons for believing that you're worm food? I think that I have better reasons than you do. And you can kind of start the conversation from there. Yeah, and, and just uh, one other thing, when you, they're dealing with the assumption that nothing exists outside of the natural, what can be observed with the five senses. If you go down that route, the quickest way to get you back to rational conversation is to give them an example of a concept that isn't, of course, 
tangible, but it's recognized to have some bearing on reality. The best and easiest is truth. Okay, so would truth, since that doesn't have a taste, it doesn't have a color, doesn't have an odor, doesn't feel like anything, doesn't you know physically interact with this world in any way, I think I'm leaving out one of the senses, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you can't see it. Does truth exist? And they'd say, well, I guess according to my assumptions, if they're consistent, no truth doesn't exist. So you'd say, so it's true that nothing's true. And then wait for their brain to re return from the state of applesauce after thinking about mm -hmm. that for a second and realize it's self-defeating. Truth is something that's real, but isn't observed by the five senses. Naturalism is a fundamentally incoherent worldview, but people like it because it distances themselves from, as Adrian was saying, so any form of moral accountability to something beyond this life. If that's in fact the case, which it always isn't, just be aware of these uh, issues that sound smart that are really easy to trip up once you catch the assumption. Hmm. Very good. Anna, thank you for your question. Hope that, that helps you out with that. We appreciate you being part of the show. Hopefully um, you'll be able to give your friends some food for thought. Oh, I see what you did there. You like that? Adrian, tricky. Yes. Question from Bob here. Hey, Bob, uh, I see you're on the show. I think this question came in yesterday, but um, I see you there, so we're going to get to it. Uh, I'm wondering about Romans 5, 5 through 8. It should be easy to understand, but for some reason I do not. What is meant by Jesus dying at just the right time? Um, and also, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Then in verse 7, why does Paul say that dying for a righteous person is rare, but for a good person someone might possibly dare to die? So I can read the passage here just so we know what we're talking about. Romans 5, 5 through 8. Uh, now hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Great passage of scripture. If you guys want to give like a mini sermon on it. I think that's what Bob's looking for. At least I am. Go yeah. for it. <laughs> um, there, there's two questions here. Firstly, what's meant by at just the right time and what was Paul leading up to in verse 7? Adrian, do you want to talk about the fullness of prophecy and I'll talk about the literature? Yeah, I think the right time is just in reference to God, you know, at the right moment in human history. You know, he calls Abraham. He promised to Abraham that he'd be the father of many nations, that the, all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. And then he says, this promise will be to your son. So he makes, he reaffirms that covenant with Isaac, uh, Jacob, his 12 <laughs> sons, and so on and so forth. And uh, there are multiple prophecies that predict, not just through the, the, the which tribe, the line of David, uh, so on and so forth, uh, just multiple prophecies. I think one mathematician said that if you were to take uh, just a handful, uh, I think there was like 333, maybe, I guess people argue about how many there are, but... Um, 300 know. and change, 100 were fulfilled in his first coming. His argument was for 10 to be fulfilled in yeah, one life. Eight, and eight, 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 yeah, yeah, eight, eight one, prophecies, yeah. Just to be fulfilled by coincidence, what were the odds? Yeah, the odds were if you were to fill the entire state of Texas with silver dollars, uh, I think one foot high... If I remember right, and mark an X on one of them and stir it up with however many bulldozers that would take. <laughs> yeah. Blindfold a guy and send him out randomly to pick up just one. 
And for him to pick that one would be the same dumb luck <laughs> that Jesus would have accidentally fulfilled just eight of these 333 prophecies. And so <clears throat> I think Paul's just referencing not just the, oh, this is great timing for us, <laughs> that God has now, because he predicted from the very beginning of Genesis, right after the fall, he will bruise your heel, but he will crush your head. And so you have this crimson thread throughout the entire uh, history of the Bible. And, you know, Jesus, the Bible says that he was before the foundations of the earth. Christ was crucified, that God had foreknown and seen all that would happen in the fall when people would freely choose to rebel. And then God had already planned before he even said, in the beginning, let there be light. He already knew that there would be a redemptive history. And so the fullness of the time is when at the right place, at the right time, as Paul says in Acts again, 17, at the fullness of time, Jesus came into the world with the right circumstances. And as that one, uh, uh, I forget which gospel, it says you, uh, I'm sorry, not a gospel, but he says you, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. good. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, speaking uh, Joseph to his brothers. But the, also in reference to Jesus that evil men, and they were exercising their free will, but at the same time, God was exercising his sovereign plan of bringing about uh, the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of, of the Christ. And, and so the idea being is that <clears throat> it, all that God had done had already been planned out ahead of time, and it was like the fullness of time. I guess that would be how I would explain that. Yeah, you look at prophecies like Daniel chapter 9 and noting to the day when Jesus arrived in Palm Sunday, but as Adrian's pointing out, the entirety of all of God's promises so that we can't just, you know, wave this away and leave it to coincidence. An intentional life was intentionally lived, an intentional death was intentionally died, and an intentional resurrection was fulfilled. That's why we're trusting this. But uh, regarding the second part of the question, what's meant in verse 7, by, you know, when we're weak, Christ died for the ungodly. When a righteous person is died for, that's rare. A good person, someone might dare. Remember that Paul is a Hebrew. This, believe it or not, is a shock to many people on the internet today. And when it comes to the Jewish way of approaching text, they live and breathe contrasts. A poetic comparison between the lesser to the greater to drive home the greater's finer point. The lesser is our love, because remember, that's what verse Verse 7 says, God demonstrates his own love as distinct from our own. When he's building up this case of saying, that's a good man, I would give my life for him. Or in a more uh, common example, you know, you see a really cute dog and you say, I would die for that animal, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'd kill everyone in this room and, my, and then myself if something bad happened to you, right? That kind of love is only demonstrated as far as the laying down of your life for someone else, for people that we think are worthy of it. Right. But, but God, notice the lesser to the greater, demonstrates his unique love towards us in that while we were sinners, and that's not just referencing, you know, we had a few kinks here and there. It's like by nature, rebellious, evil. Uh, you can uh, look up, I'm trying to remember the name of the preacher. It was uh, Sir Jonathan. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry yeah, God. Yeah, John Edwards. Yep. Um, 
basically the most repulsive thing you could imagine in God's sight, and he died for the undeserving, for the unworthy. Uh, a good description of that is in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, where it makes the same point. So when we're talking about, you know, I'm basically a good enough person, I believe that I'm, you know, people are basically good, you can always assume altruism, there's uh, humanists like Matt Dillahunty will say that, you know, we have a better moral foundation in Christianity based purely on selfishness. And then the next month, the uh, uh, COVID epidemic hit and people started beating each other up for toilet paper. Mm. So <laughs> live with that if you want. But the idea behind our love being limited and God's love being infinite is demonstrated by the value he placed on us, not dying for the worthy, but the unworthy, yeah. not because we are good, but because he's that good. That's the point. Yeah. And I, I could see how you might get thrown off a little bit by the the, past, the part in verse 7, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. And the, you know, I used to throw me off a little bit too, thinking, well, wait a minute, isn't a righteous man better than a good man because he's righteous, and righteousness is sort of our standing between us and God, versus a good man is sort of from a human perspective, oh yeah, he's a good guy. And so I used to get kind of thrown off by that a little bit as well, thinking, wait a minute, why would he not reverse the two? Why wouldn't he say, for a righteous man, anybody would die, but for a good guy, maybe not. And mm -hmm. I think it might be because, you know, look at how <clears throat> Israel treated the prophets. Anytime someone had a righteous standing with God, there is the ungodly's response to that is hatred and wants to not only not die for that person, but maybe cause their death. And so the idea is that people would never die for a righteous man because they're righteous, and they're, that's an offense to them in the sin nature. Uh, but for a good guy, oh yeah, you know, maybe, rarely. But the point, as Sean pointed out, is that God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that means we're none of them. We're not a good guy or a righteous guy. We're the worst of the worst. We are the worst of all sinners. We are uh, ungodly, non-seekers of God. <clears throat> Our most righteous deeds are as filthy rags, as Jeremiah says. So, um, <clears throat> and yet Christ died for us. And I like what it says uh, right above that. It says God demonstrates his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he's illustrating and emphasizing that point that we stand in God's favor by pure grace through faith and that uh and i think he's just illustrating that on a human level someone might dare to die for a good person but you know christ died, died for, for bad people yeah yeah or a dog setting see. up a little contrast yeah <clears throat> and even we were enemies with god the, the word not even good or bad but enemies towards god i mean that's pretty strong language as well um thank you bob for your for your question yeah. and being with us hope that helps you out great question there um your buddy uh, rod is with us adrian your fellow uh, illusionist i believe oh, yeah. yeah he has a question a great question here um how were the books of the bible determined to be in the canon of texts accepted to be god's word so the, the bible is a group of books that at yep. some point in history were decided this is god's word how did that come to be 
Well, according to uh, Dan Brown, they were put on a table, they shook it up, and whatever didn't fall off <laughs> were the Bible. The author Good. of the Da Vinci All right, Code. moving on. <laughs> to any historian who has an ounce of integrity, um, when it comes to the reason the 39 bo- books of the Old Testament in particular were chosen is because they measured up. That's what canon means. It's literally a measuring rod. It means it meets the standard. Mm. And when Did you get they that rod? Ta- a measuring yeah, rod? Yeah, a measuring rod. Ah. Hopefully uh, not over too many. We are very punny today, aren't we? Yes. Um, The idea was that they measured up to the standard to the first man that God spoke his word in a written form to. There were people who were spoken to God in the past. Abraham, but he didn't write. Adam, but he didn't write. Noah, but he didn't write. Moses was the first person to put it into writing. So if someone were to recognize script as from God, then they needed to pass the standard that he laid down. And you can read this throughout the book of Deuteronomy, but in chapter 17, verses 28 through 30, we're given in summary four criteria that were used for the Hebrew people to say you're either a true prophet or a false prophet. And false prophets obviously aren't true spokesmen or prophets for God. We're not going to listen to your words, let alone write them down and understand this is recognized as for everybody. This is something worth preserving as opposed to other books like um, the account of, it's mentioned in the book of Joshua, Jasher. That was an ancient book, but it wasn't scripture, so it wasn't as Mm. preserved. So the idea of measuring up to that standard, the canon, uh, the standard was fourfold. First, if like Moses, you were to speak for God, you're not speaking human perspective, you're speaking God's perspective. He's going to get things right. So any historical or factual errors, no, not assumptions, but errors in the text would, of course, be dismissed if you spoke in the name of the Lord and said something that was blatantly false. If the prophet speaks something that does not come to pass, don't be afraid of him, and also noting it was a capital punishment, but we'll get to that more in a second. The second standard was that if you're going to speak accurately about God, you're also going to speak about the same God. You needed not only accuracy, but consistency mm-hmm. in what you were speaking. Someone were to speak after Moses, like Joshua, he was going to talk about the same God, and Samuel after him, and Nathan, and Gad, and you get it on, on and on it goes. You needed consistency because the same God was the one that was speaking. <coughs> then we need to ask the question, okay, if it's consistent, if it's accurate, what about if you mess up? Is there some sort of measure to dis, uh, I guess, motivate, to restrain people from considering, you know, there's a lot of money that can be made in religion if I have no ethics, but these Hebrews, they take this stuff really seriously. How would I know that? Well, because in those same passages in Deuteronomy, it notes that the person who speaks falsely in the name of God is to be literally killed with rocks, that there was a capital offense. Accountability was the third standard. If any of these men spoke in the name of God and they weren't willing to literally stick their necks out for what they were claiming, Mm. that wouldn't, it wouldn't be regarded because God's truth was willing to stand up to criticism. It could be tested. It could be verified. And of course, the person who's innocent is going to have a lot more confidence in speaking than if they were guilty and trying to hide something. They want to have as few police interrogations as possible. 
The fourth, and this is the most important, is that every single book in the Old Testament, the 39 books that we recognize as the canon, were spoken by men who didn't just speak God's words, but were supported by God through his deeds. And this is what I mean by that. Public miracles, whether it's a prediction of the future, a nature miracle, anything of the sort. When Moses was told, you know, how will they know that I've been sent by you? What was the standard? What did God do? He said, well, stick your hand in your coat and pull it. Why is it leprous? I'll stick it back. It's fine. They're going to trust me as the one speaking, not just to have my facts right, but because I'm literally showing this is me acting. Someone beyond nature is going to impact it. So when you see men like Jeremiah speaking, and he spoke accurately of the future, people were you know, judging his words against the false prophets, and they had to ask, okay, well, who's the one that's trustworthy? And then post-Babylon, after the fire was put out in their hairs and so forth, they're like, okay, now we know who is telling the truth. That's how these guys were tested. But if you're still, you know, wondering why I haven't mentioned the New Testament again, it's because I'm building up this case. The New Testament bases all of its authority on the Old Testament. When the apostles spoke in the name of Jesus, what did they do? They not only shared Jesus as the same consistent God of the Old Testament, not only got their facts about Jesus dying, being buried, and rising from the dead the third day, and were very careful to do so, were in an environment where they were constantly under scrutiny and even unjustly stoned as a result of what they were claiming about Jesus as their Messiah. What did they do that made it so that the Sanhedrin, that the Romans, that they just couldn't shake? They performed miracles, God always backing up his words with deeds. So the Old and New Testament are based on the same standard. Now, there was a time in history, very recent history, not by our standards certainly, but around 500 years ago, where for political purposes, the Roman Catholic Church tried to alter the Old Testament canon, not the New, by the way, that's why I'm focusing on the Old, mm -hmm. in order to justify certain traditions which they couldn't find scriptural support for. It wasn't to say that these were, uh, excuse me, books weren't historical, but according to the authors themselves, were fictional. I'm referring to things like Tobit, Enoch, the uh, Wisdom of Solomon, uh, Esdras and others like that. Mm. Stuff that was written around the time of the Assyrian exile and fictional stuff that was written between the period of Daniel and uh, Matthew. But the point being made is just this. When books were, let's use an obvious example like Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon, added to the canon of Scripture and saying these are the most correct books ever written. Mm. Well, grammar aside, the funny thing about it is that there's no historical evidence to support anything that he's claiming. You could argue, oh, well, absence of evidence is evidence of absence. Yeah, but how do you verify any of it? God's always going to put his credentials on the table. Did Joseph perform any miracles? His greatest miracle, apparently, was to keep a church together that fractured the moment he was shot to death in prison for molesting a bunch of the men in the town's girls. So, oh, and uh, by the way, destroying a printing press, exposing those very facts and his false prophecies. But I digress. When we're talking about God's standard, his canon, that's what the word means, we're talking about people who were measured up to that standard, and that was who? Moses. And from the Old to the New Testament, measured up. They 
they uh, pass that four standard criterion. Now, of course, when people object to this and say, well, I think that if God was real, then he would, you know, make it so that it was photocopy accurate. Or if God was real, he would have, and this is a, a common atheist claim, they should have put things other than this in there, like scientific equations and stuff. And then two sentences later went on to say, but then I'd think it was all a fabrication anyway. So no evidence would convince them. This is the point. If someone's going to dictate for God, what would convince them? Then God has been reduced to a puppet that's supposed to entertain them and not a will on his own. That's unreasonable for me to say, well, you know, if uh, the guy next to me really existed, then I'm going to decide what will prove it to me. I'm going to be convinced if he purchases me a PlayStation 5 featuring and including the collector's edition for Spider-Man 2 uh, in the next hour. Well, first of all, the guy next to me is under no obligation to entertain that ridiculous assumption. Secondly, I don't even want a PlayStation 5. I'm putting that out there just to dismiss the fact of something I don't want to be true. And third, what about what Adrian <laughs> is going to say is going to verify my existence since he has the right and authority, being the God figure in this conversation? If God's laid down his credentials and they're fair, which I think they are, nature miracles is a start, then we can say, okay, this is why I would take his revelation seriously. And if you're having trouble summarizing all that, my dad usually has a good like summation of all these points in that first, why do I trust the Bible? Because it's doctrinally consistent. Note the second standard there. Second, because it's, excuse me, um, it is prophetically significant. It speaks of events of the past, present, and future, all with the same 100% accuracy rating. Not the things that we can't verify, but the things that we can. Archaeologists say that every single discovery made regarding biblical evidence and archaeology has not only sought to confirm it, but not a single piece has denied it. And the third is, of course, not just consistency, not just prophetic predictive power, but the idea that the resurrection of Jesus is also historical. It doesn't begin with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You may, like the assumptions of the first question we made, say, well, miracles can't happen, therefore that's false. That's an assumption, not a fact. If we're going to actually work with the information we have, that's why these things measure up, because the one who revealed them set up his credentials a fair one, not saying, well, if I was real, or if I'm a true prophet, then God would strike me with lightning if I'm lying. Hmm. So you have to assume that prophecy is true to find out whether what I'm telling you is true. Right? That's silly. But if, on the other hand, I say, okay, if God's real, he's going to start with a good example and work forward. And he did with these, <laughs> the 66 books that we recognize as the Old and New Testament. Now, of course, there were questions over time, uh, things like, of course, in the New Testament, the uh, Shepherd of Hermas, um, the Didache, a uh, few other books that are escaping me at the moment, uh, cultic writings like the Gospel of Thomas and so forth are self-explanatory. Mm -hmm. But the idea behind it is just that. When they were asking questions that was with this working standard, does it measure up? Mm -hmm. And that's the point. Right. Yeah, apostolic authority or authorship <clears throat> was a huge criteria. And they didn't determine which books were there. Uh, they, did try to, they had a criteria to discover which books were considered scripture. Because the scriptures themselves set a standard by calling something scripture. 
And so <clears throat> whatever that criteria is, when they tried to discover which New Testament writings would be included in the Jewish canon uh, to be part of the New Testament, they would just apply that criteria. Hmm. Are there <clears throat> other books that didn't make it in that are worth reading that would be edifying, or is it all just basically heresy and that's why they didn't? Well, edifying for well, what purpose? Yeah, the apocryphal writings could be considered useful for maybe some historical, like, events, peoples, places, perhaps. Mm -hmm. The Maccabees mostly for Hanukkah. Yeah, but for as far as theology, uh, uh, I mean, the Gnostic Gospels were <laughs> during the time of legend. So when people ask, well, how come you're only including these Gospels? What about these 12 other Gospels or these, you know, and they'll go through the whole list. Well, these were all written way past the eyewitness generations mm. during the legendary. And then claimed, and they, what do they call it? Pseudo, pseudo, pseudographs or something. Pseudographical. Yeah, where they steal the name of a person who was there and then assume their authorship. But these so were to be the taken authors. Seriously. So. so if the cover page is a lie, yeah. yeah. What does that say about this stuff behind yeah, it? <laughs> and some of the things are so obviously Gnostic and so absurd. For example, in the Gospel of Thomas, uh, Peter asked Jesus, how do women go to heaven? And I'm paraphrasing in my own words. But yeah, this how is can she follow gist, us? This is the gist of what, what the Gospel of Thomas <laughs> says. And, and Jesus' response to Peter is hilarious. He says, well, in order for a woman to get, go to heaven, she needs to make herself a man. Then she can go to heaven. It's like, oh, you know, I mean, this is so ridiculous and so contrary to the, the nature of the real Jesus that it, it wasn't even a debate. Uh, well, it didn't have to be because they were, well, many of those were written. And we have to understand, too, that the canon wasn't decided hundreds of years after the fact. The <laughs> early church had an established canon mm. within the eyewitness generation. Yeah, they were referencing it as if it was an assumption. The only problem was when Arius reared his ugly head and St. Nicholas hadn't clocked it yet, the idea was not the books that were in the Bible, but how they were treated. It wasn't, didn't have anything to do with that. Um, and, and again, just to kind of belabor the point, because this will come in handy, uh, there's other Gnostic accounts where, for instance, in the Acts of Peter, uh, he challenges a false prophet to a flying contest. So they both fly and they're, they're circling the city and stuff, and then Peter prays, and then he loses his flying power, and he crashes. So that, that's how you knew he was a true prophet. Uh, oh. There was another uh, gospel account, one of the Gnostic ones, that I think it was the Gospel of Judas, um, where the resurrection account notes uh, Jesus being brought out with two figures whose heads extend up and beyond to heaven, and then a cr talking cross also comes out of the tomb, and then a voice from heaven asks the cross if he's fulfilled the purpose which I've called you to, and the cross, I don't know what voice a cross says, so I'll just say, I did. That, mm. that's, that's, that's obviously ridiculous, but when we're talking about this compared to the eyewitness accounts, the gospels that we not only recognize, yeah. but they actually go back to the eyewitnesses yeah. themselves, what do they report? Well, obviously speaking to a culture that loves the dramatic, loves the whatever i just finished summarizing all that stuff it's frankly kind of boring mm -hmm. there's two angels there but that's hardly significant given that they were only treated or recognized as young men mm -hmm. they, they didn't you know put off a show or anything the lightning flashing was certainly a reference back to the um transfiguration on the mount or on the trying to remember the name of the mountain. Anyway, outside of the Sea of Galilee, mm -hmm. and when they were making these appearances, who do they first approach? 
a la Gospel of Thomas, unfortunately, the women were the primary eyewitnesses mm. in a culture that didn't consider their testimony valid in court. Mm. So if this God wanted to manipulate people in the way these Gnostic writings would and kind of appealing to the crowd, what did he do? Well, he clearly failed to read the room. You know, culturally, if you're going to make the money, you need the snappy thumbnail, you need a short title, you need to make sure you put your tags in your YouTube videos, or TikTok's where it's at right now. No, God just kind of put it in the newspaper and let people come to it on their own time. And that's the point. So when we're dealing with these questions, why are these books in the Bible and others aren't? It's the reason why they were tested and the reasonable nature by which that standard was formed in the first place. It started with an example and it continued onward. And as these examples were followed, it is fair to conclude these are at least worth taking seriously where others who either never claimed to be prophetic, like Enoch, or they would have been killed and had their works destroyed, that's the point. These were treated as fictional because they came from a culture that would have killed them if they claimed to be consistent. Mm -hmm. Because in Enoch, for example, it claims that Enoch is the Messiah. Why would a Christian believe that? That's blasphemous. You look at uh, first or uh, second Maccabees, excuse me, and it notes King Nebuchadnezzar as the king of Assyria. That's an error. He was the king of Babylon. Mm -hmm. And on and on it goes. So you need to not only recognize the standard, but understand the difference between the true and the counterfeit, and that's the point. Yeah. I like what Hebrews 2, how it sort of reaffirms that idea of not only just apostolic authority as far as New Testament canon, but also the authentication through the miraculous. You know, like the, the law of the prophets was, you know, <coughs> miraculous and 100% accuracy, thus saith the Lord. New Testament, <coughs> the writer of Hebrews, I'll start in verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression disobedient received its just reward, how should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. That means eyewitness testimony, those who were with him, the, the apostles. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, with various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So how should we ignore that evidence? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Great, well, thank you. Rod, thanks for that question. It's a great question, very important question. Thanks for asking it. Um, appreciate you. I have a question from Casey uh, about blamelessness. Uh, is the blamelessness of Job referred to in Job 1.8 the same as the blamelessness referred to in Psalm 15 and Titus 1.6? Um, no to the first example, yes to the second. Uh, Titus 1.6 is noting that if a man desires the role of a bishop, he desires a good thing, he must be first be blameless. The idea there isn't sinlessness, but the idea of not having something that could be held against you. Yeah. Job wasn't sinless, obviously. He offered sacrifices for himself and his children, but when he was uh, brought on the table by his three friends, what did he say? You know, if I have some hidden faults here, by all means, I've dealt with it. You can't hold anything against me. So what's the difference between that and Psalm 15? Well, let me read it. It's only five verses. Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle? Okay, already some pretty high standards here because abiding, not just to be there, but to set up your tent in God's tent. What's that referencing? That's, That's the very presence of yeah. God, right? Mm -hmm. Who may dwell in your holy hill? 
He who walks uprightly and works righteousness, he and speaks the truth in his heart. Note that. He who does not backbite with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor does he take up reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but he honors those who fears the Lord. He who swears to his own hurt and does not change, he who does not put out his money usury, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things, and there's the key phrase here, shall never be moved. Now, three references are made in that psalm to Jesus exclusively. The one who can rightly dwell or abide in the tabernacle, that's referenced in the book of Hebrews, is the one that's our high priest forever, continuously. The one who can stand in the Holy of Holies and literally say, I'm not only here and not being struck dead, I'm sitting on that throne. The second is what's interesting in noting not speaking evil in his heart. This was something the Apostle Peter intentionally referenced to describe Jesus as sinless, who was in him no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That was the idea of both inwardly and outwardly. Jesus was not only blameless, but holy, perfect. And the last one is another reference that's also regarded in another psalm. I believe it's Psalm 67. Yeah, but uh, the idea of never being moved, that's a reference to the messianic line, that from your line shall be Mm -hmm. one to sit on my throne forever. Mm -hmm. He won't be replaced by another. So this is describing someone who's eternal. This is describing someone who's sinless, and this is describing someone who's worthy to stand in the presence of God on his own merit, based on what he does and doesn't do. So when people read a lot of the Psalms and they're wondering, I, I get like the Micah 6, 8 thing. What is he required of you but to seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God? But this is describing someone who's not just like, you know, don't cheat on your taxes, play fair, don't defraud people. No, it's saying through and through you have to be perfect if you want to dwell with God. And who's the one worthy of that? This is a messianic psalm. This is describing the nature of the Messiah, the character of people that can dwell with the Lord. Now, obviously, when we're described as like him in 1 John chapter 3, verse 3, that's our hope, that we'll be conformed to his image, that the work God's doing in our hearts is to make us into the image of Christ, Romans 8 and plenty of other places say. But that's the point. Uh, Psalm 15, no. That's not describing blamelessness. That's describing holiness. But Job and Titus 1.6 do parallel quite nicely because they're describing someone who doesn't have no, or someone who isn't faultless, but someone who deals with their faults immediately, the mark of spiritual maturity. Yeah, blameless, the word there is describing someone who um, who just lives a life of integrity. And then there's a little parallel too. Um, the man who was blameless and unright, he feared God and shunned evil. So blameless, upright, God-fearer, and turns from evil. Uh, same with the concept of upright, um, which s- simply can mean someone who's see- a seeker of peace is another usage of the word, another way of its be- it being translated as someone who seeks peace. So it's not uh, trying to communicate that Job was perfectly sinless in the same way that Jesus was. And so, yeah, the answer to your question, as Sean said, is that no, Job was not sinless in the same sense as the other passage, but in the same way that Titus is, yes, someone who is righteous before God, who is, is someone who has humbled himself, recognized their own sin, and has now appropriated or 
uh, receive the grace of God through the sacrifice that Jesus provided. <clears throat> Great. Uh, Casey, thank you for that question. Um, hopefully we'll get to your other question if we have time today, but I wanted to uh, have Mike's question up here next. Mike asks, is repenting from sin to be saved wrong? Or is repentance more about changing direction and turning from sin um, later in sanctification? So do we repent from sin to be saved? Is that a wrong idea, wrong concept? I'm confused. <coughs> well, if, if you're repenting from sin, first to of all... To be saved, yeah. Yeah, you, I mean, if someone does something immoral and they go, you know what, I shouldn't do that, that's wrong. Uh, hopefully this will save me and correct my standing with God. No, that's not how that works. But if if what you mean by repenting from sin means I acknowledge and recognize now, in light of hearing the truth of God's word, that I am a sinner and I am eternally lost. Uh, again, my righteous deeds are as filthy rags in his sight. I can do nothing righteous. I cannot do any good because I am a sinful, broken human being and need God's grace. <clears throat> and if I agree with God about that and say, yes, I am a sinner and I turn towards Jesus for my salvation, then yes, you can repent of, you know, it includes, but it's not just changing your mind about sin. It includes changing your mind about who God is and who Jesus is and who you are and turning to the truth. So it's really turning from lies to the truth. The lies are, hey, anyone who says in his heart, I have no sin, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. <laughs> so you're turning from that lie to the truth that, oh, I am a sinner, and I am in desperate need of salvation, and Jesus is the only answer. So that would, <clears throat> I would say in that sense, yeah, turning from sin is included, but if you mean repenting from a sin, like, oh, I shouldn't have done that one bad thing that I've been doing for a long time. If I repent from that, maybe God will, you know, consider me good enough to be saved. Well, that's right. not the right perspective, I don't think. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's kind of what, what do you mean? I mean, it depends. You might yeah. need to clarify your... Well, it's that, I mean, it, it's that theology of salvation, isn't it? We don't, we don't have to stop and repent. It's not the stopping sin or repenting from sin that saves us. It's Christ on the cross that saves us. However, we don't just continue. I mean, what was it Paul that said? Do, we, do I continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Because we, we are saved, sin? then we, of course, want to, you yeah. know, like you say, the truth. God has revealed the truth to us, so we don't want to continue in these things. But it's not because that saves us. It's because we, we love a holy God and yeah. you know no longer want to. Well, the last part of the question, too, kind of gives a little hint. Or turning from sin comes later in sanctification. Well, if you, th if you mean by repenting from sin for salvation means I have to get my whole act cleaned up, yeah. then I could see how that would be a works-based righteousness. That would be meaning I have to get every area of my life out of sin— and then I can receive salvation, then that, yeah. I would say that would be a different gospel. Yeah. Repentance means I'm Psalm 15. No, um, as you know, repentance, literally metanoia, means to turn around, a change of mind resulting in a change of heart, resulting in a change of life. Um, when we're talking about repentance unto salvation and repentance from sin, this is where I'm kind of confused about the phrasing of the question. We do repent when we start trusting in Jesus because we're repenting from the mind sorry 
turned to the page in the Bible and it had 666 on it. What was I talking about? Um, we're looking at our relationship with God by our own good works and turning to a relationship with God through Christ's finished work. Yeah. That's, a, that's repentance. That's why Peter said in Acts 2, repent and believe the gospel and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So that's important. If, on the other hand, we get confused and say, so have the opportunity to repent every single day, like uh, Spurgeon said, you know, birds fly, fish swim, Christians repent. It's something that we do all the time. We have a way of living our life, which is, I think, your point about sanctification, and we're turning from that daily, and oftentimes moment by moment, from that as our means of meeting our desires and wanting to fulfill God's desire instead. That's repentance in an ongoing sense. But to say that it's either I repent unto salvation or I don't repent enough and thus I'm not saved, you're missing the point. It's, you know, the verb or the noun issue here. Mm. The noun is what we're doing unto salvation, unto good works. Both are repentance, but one results in salvation, the other is the life of a saved soul. That's why I'm confused. Yeah. Well, Mike, I hope that helps you out with that. It's a big, big issue. Um, thank you for asking that question. Um, Casey's uh, th- second question was yeah. about um, the children referred to in Job nineteen seventeen. It says, uh, my breath is offensive to my wife and I am repulsed, repulsive to the children of my own body. Casey asks, who are the children referred to in Job nineteen seventeen? Probably teenagers. Um, no, the <laughs> yeah. little lighthearted thing. Um, I was caught off guard because I had that page turned to to read ahead a bit, and the page number in my Bible is 666, so do with that what you will. Anyway, um, remember the whole conversation? Remember the genre of the passage? Job is poetry, so he's allowed to be a little inflective, or I guess invective in this case. Uh, but he goes on to describe himself before this as saying, his brothers have abandoned them, his acquaintances are estranged from me, his friends abhor me, his, bo- his body hates itself. But in verse 25, it notes, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last when I stand on the earth, when my skin is destroyed, the problem here, I know that in my flesh I shall see God. He'll take me warts and all. The, and it's also describing a literal resurrection, during the time of Abraham, go figure. But note that as Job's making this illustration, which I think is where the confusion is, it's not saying that his kids are still alive and around to be grossed out by him. His wife certainly was, we see that in chapter two. But the idea is him just describing his state where everyone and everything in his life hates his physical body, but God doesn't. He's going to resurrect me and he isn't ashamed of me. That's the point. Gotcha. Makes sense. Great. Well, thank you for your questions today. Great questions. Yeah. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you, Sean. We never know where it's going to go all over the place. You guys are wonderful. Appreciate you. We'll be back again, same time, same place tomorrow for more of your questions. Shoot us an email, questionsforhope.gmail.com. We will see you tomorrow. Blessings. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.